If you turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the book of Daniel, chapter 5. Let's pray together. Father, as we read your word and consider together, we know this is an encounter with you. Speak that we may hear. Open our eyes that we may see. Soften our hearts that we may respond. In Yeshua's name, amen. Chapter 5 begins with these words. Verse 1, Belshazzar the king. It's an abrupt beginning. This figure appears seemingly out of nowhere. We've not heard of this person before. The previous chapter was all about God humbling King Nebuchadnezzar. It was all about God showing him who was really in charge. And Nebuchadnezzar's response to this particular encounter with God was humbling. He humbled himself, and then he gave testimony to the fact that this was the true God, and it seems that he had become a genuine believer in the one true God. Then suddenly, chapter 5, a new king is on the scene, Belshazzar. This chapter begins approximately 30 years after the previous one. There have been various rulers that have come along. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has died, and Belshazzar's father has come to power about 17 years before this chapter begins. His name was Nabonidus. He was probably married to one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters, and therefore there was some claim to the throne, but he had gotten it through um, evil means. However, Nebuchadnezzar was not in favor of worshiping the main god in the pantheon of Babylon. And so because of that, he lived elsewhere and he left his son, Belshazzar, in Babylon to take care of the affairs of state. And so Babylon was ruled by Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. This particular chapter takes place all in one night, October the 11th, 539 BCE. It is a fateful night. As I mentioned, Belshazzar has been ruling with his father, and their reign together has covered approximately 17 years. And on this very night, the city of Babylon is actually surrounded by the army of the Medes and the Persians. However, Babylon was so fortified that it was felt nobody could breach it. There was plenty of food. Historians say there was enough food that they could have lived, the citizens of this city could have lived there for years. They had diverted the water of the Euphrates River through the city, and so they had plenty of water. And the walls were thick, and there were many of them. And so even though there was an enemy army outside, there seems to be 
a great sense that there was no real danger. And so Belshazzar the king on this night, it says, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. I don't want you to use your imagination very much because this was a horrible scene. This was essentially a drunken party. The, the people uh, were drinking to the point of intoxication. Belshazzar was probably on a platform so that everybody could see how he was leading the way in this drunken reverie. And as the evening went on, it came into his intoxicated mind to get the, the, the goblets and the, the treasures that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had never done this, and it was not a common thing for, for kings, for pagan kings to do this, because at the least they were superstitious. And therefore, they didn't want to anger any of the gods that were out there, whoever they might be. But in an act of pure arrogance and in an act of defiance, of the true and living God, and in a disregard for all that is righteous and, and holy, he calls for these vessels and they begin to drink and they praise the gods of the various metals who are no gods at all. And then suddenly something happens that is unexpected. In verse 5, in that same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. A hand appears. A finger begins to write on the wall. Out of nowhere. It's near a lampstand, so it's in plain sight for all to see. And this is how the king responded. In verse 6, the king's countenance changed. His thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. He became basically limp with fear, with dread, not knowing what was happening. And then the king in verse 7 cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers, the king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. And because of that, because 
his counselors and advisors failed to help in this mysterious situation. Verse 9, then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled, even more greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. They were scared to death. They didn't know what was happening. They didn't understand. Something supernatural had obviously taken place. They'd all seen it. And nobody could explain what was going on. And then about that time, because of all the commotion, it seems, the queen, or better, the queen mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen mother spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, or your predecessor, or your ancestor, referring to Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom like wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your ancestor, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Daniel was probably in his 80s at this time. And he had also probably been, been relegated to some position, unknown position. Belshazzar seems to be aware of him, but had totally disregarded him. Put him in a corner, if you will. Then in verse 13, Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, whom my Father, my ancestor, the king, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Can you get the spirit there? There's, a, there's still a spirit of, of arrogance talking down to this man of God. You're, you're one of those exiles, aren't you? You're that that country that we conquered so many years ago. You're, you're supposed to be something, someone that knows about spiritual matters, but maybe, maybe not. In verse 15, Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. If you can do anything, I doubt it, but my mom says maybe you can. So, what about it, Daniel? And if you can, I'll give you this big reward. Nebuchadnezzar is the real king. 
Belshazzar is second in command. The next highest position, the third ruler of the kingdom, I'll give to you, Daniel. In verse 17, the man of God answers. Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. And then Daniel takes Belshazzar on a little history lesson. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. Whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, his descendant, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. Belshazzar's sin was not a sin of ignorance. Belshazzar's sin was a sin of willful defiance, willful rebellion against the clear evidence of the Most High God. Daniel continues in verse 23, And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. That sounds just like Shaul in the letter to the Romans, doesn't it? The wrath of God is being revealed against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of people because of all the evidence there is of God through creation. Because we can know about God even in the most elementary ways through what he has made through ourselves through our conscience and yet we have worshipped the created beings and primarily we have worshipped ourselves been in charge of our own lives without reference to God and therefore we did not thank God and therefore God began to give us over until there was a downward death spiral that Shaul describes in that first letter of Romans. Not glorifying God for who he is, rather exalting 
the creature. It's interesting. Some people like to spell sin, S capital I N. You know, you could spell pride the same way, P R capital I D E. The big I in the middle is the greatest sin of humanity. That we live life without reference to God. And in spite of the evidence, we have turned against God. Now it is a great mark of insight as we look at this text together to see that God made us for a relationship with himself and that God is slow to anger. Over and over in Scripture you see that. That God is slow to anger. God is long-suffering. Again, in the Roman letter in chapter 2, it says it is the kindness and the patience of God that is designed to draw us to turn and come into relationship with Him. In the, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 28 and verse, verse 21, there's a strange statement here. If you could turn there with me, Isaiah chapter 28. Verse 21. For the Lord will rise up as Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Those last two phrases, to do his work, his awesome work. The word awesome work there is really the word strange. It's the Hebrew word for stranger. It's his strange work. And in the the next phrase, his unusual act, the Hebrew word there is for foreigner or alien, indicating something unfamiliar. The King James Version says that this is his strange work and this is his strange act. What is it that is strange? It is God's judgment. Because God's judgment is something that he was, if you will, very very sacredly I say this, God was forced into it because of the rebellion that happened in the beginning. Judgment is God's strange foreign work. The very heart of God is the heart of a loving Father. Through all eternity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have been fellowshipping and loving one another together. The heart of God is primarily the heart of a Father. And so the judgment that God must execute is a strange thing. It is... Late in coming, if you will. It is consistent, totally consistent with his character. But it is something executed in the space of fallen humanity. In the fallenness that occurred in time. God does not delight in executing his judgment. As as I've worked on the university campus, I've talked with so many young men and women who had the viewpoint that God was like this big ogre in the sky. 
excited to bash you on the head for any wrong thing you ever did. That he was looking for a way to, to be mean, essentially. And I, I thought, you know, if, if that's the way God is, I wouldn't want to worship that God either. I wouldn't want to follow that God, but that's not the true God. The true God is not one who's looking for a way to smash us. The true and living God is the, the God who is patient and long-suffering, looking for a way to save us, for a way to spare us. In a second letter, Peter writes that we living in the last days, that there are, there are some who mock and say, well, where, where is the, the return of this Messiah? Because things have been going on ever since the beginning of time. And they neglect to, to remember God's interventions in history. And Peter sums up his argument by saying this, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but its heart's desire, His heart's desire is that all should come to repentance. For years, Belshazzar basically lived life according to himself. There's evidence in history that he was a wicked man. He was a proud and arrogant man. He was self-centered. And he was immoral. And yet God was patient with him. God gave witness to him through what he had done in Nebuchadnezzar, his predecessor's life. It was well known. What Daniel said to Belshazzar was, was well known. There was evidence that God had worked, that God was really the true and living God, that he was in charge. And yet Belshazzar had continued to turn away from this. And God had continued to seek to draw him to himself. And now on this fateful night, God intervenes in a very final kind of way. If you and I flaunt the interventions of God, his initiatives, his desire to reveal himself to us, if we persistently resist, if we persistently flaunt, if we persistently refuse, there will come a time when God, as it were, will draw a line. And that is what we would want. That God is ultimately also just and righteous as we've heard in the Devar this morning. And that it is the most loving thing God could do to say, okay, that's enough. No further. We know that that's partly what God had done, that that Jerusalem had been captured by Nebuchadnezzar. The first chapter of Daniel says that God had given it over because the people had refused to turn back to God. And therefore God said, okay, that's enough. And we read, we've read about the, the promised land that God promised to his people. And yet Abraham and Isaac and Jacob didn't get to, 
to fully inherit it because God said that the sins of the people were not yet full. So God was bearing and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, but also saying there comes a time when that's it. That's enough. There is a proverb that says, He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. God is reaching out in our day, extending his hand of mercy and love, long-suffering in our culture as we have spit in his face and turned away from him time and again. God continues to reach out and desires for us to turn to Him with all of our hearts. You and I, as followers of Yeshua, we want to be people who will be tender-hearted towards God. Even as His followers, we want to be responsive to His Word. We want to be fully alive, even in the midst of a culture that seems to be crumbling before our very eyes, in a world that seems to be crumbling as well. Verse 24, the intervention of God in a final kind of way. Daniel says, you've known all of this, you didn't glorify God. Therefore, the fingers of the hand, this hand, the palm, the fingers were sent from God, from him. And this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Four words. Many, many tekel upharsin. And here is the interpretation of each, says Daniel. These words are weights. Many, mina, means to number. Tekel, shekel, means to weigh. And upharsin, perez, the singular, is half shekel. They are weights, measures. And here's what Daniel says about these words. This is what God is saying to you, Belshazzar. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. This is the end. This is the line. You've filled it up to the full. Your rebellion, your pride, your arrogance... Your defiance of the living God has reached an end. And your kingdom is finished. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found light as a feather, found wanting. In the first book of Samuel, chapter 2, Hannah prays a prayer after God gloriously answering her Hannah prays and talks about this idea of weightiness. Chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. And Hannah prayed and said, verse 1, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My heart is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy 
like the Lord. And the word holy is the word for weighty. That God is weighty in righteousness and justice in character and purity totally different. For there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Take no more. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The Lord weighs each one of us. The Lord on this night had weighed Belshazzar in a final way. And he had weighed his thoughts, his attitudes, his whole life. And the conclusion was that you are lacking. I'm reminded of of that story that Yeshua told about the rich fuel, fuel fool who had a, a very lucrative farm and his crops produced plenty. And so he said in his heart, I think that I will build more barns to keep all of the stuff I got. And Yeshua, in telling this story, says that the Lord came to him and said, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be that you have provided? And Yeshua's summary of this story is that so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This night, your soul will be required of you. When God puts you on the balance and weighs you, what does he find? With Belshazzar, he found that he was totally destitute of any kind of relationship with himself and any kind of riches in heaven, any kind of riches towards God. He had lived only for time. He had lived only for himself. He had left left God out of the equation. And when you leave God out of the equation, you always come up with zero. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And then Perez, your kingdom has divided has been divided and it is now shared with the Medes and the Persians. Your kingdom. You're losing your kingdom. You're losing your life. You're losing everything because you left out the one person in the universe that you should have been paying attention to. You had evidence that he was real. You had evidence that he was the great king above all kings. You had evidence that he's the one that puts people in charge of governments. That he raises one up and puts another down. You had evidence and you ignored it. You refused it. And your kingdom is divided and given away. Does that make you cry? I hope so. God does not delight in the destruction of anyone. He wants everyone to turn to Him 
and to find life. That is God's delight. Daniel, I don't think, gave this word with meanness in his, his heart. I think Daniel perhaps was brokenhearted over the fact that this descendant of Nebuchadnezzar with whom he had had such a special relationship, that this descendant had refused to learn from what he had seen in the life of his predecessor. Well, Belshazzar gives the command and, and keeping his word, you know, why, why did he keep his word when it was such a statement of judgment against him? He kept his word and he gave Daniel the the clothed him with purple, he put the gold chain around his neck, he made the proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then, verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. What had happened is the Medes and Persians had diverted the Euphrates River so that the water level went down low enough so that the army could march through on the riverbed with water just up to their knees. And they quietly came in while this drunken revelry was happening. They quietly came in. They captured the city without a fight. And they executed Belshazzar. And then the kingdom went to Darius the Mede of the Medo-Persian Empire. And Daniel outlived the Babylonian Empire. Just like God had promised. Daniel had seen his precious nation fall because of their rebellion against God and refusal to turn. And yet Daniel and his three friends had remained true to the Lord through all of the Challenges of living in a foreign culture, a pagan culture. Daniel and his three friends had remained true to the Lord, walking in faith, living out their relationship with God. God continued to be the most important person in their lives. God had continued to be the one on whom they relied. God had rescued his, them from death at least two times that are recorded. And God had demonstrated His sovereignty over the highest, most powerful people in Daniel's day. And Daniel lives beyond this empire. The man of God who was put into a corner was the, the one whose life was spared and continued on. The one who was ignored was the key to the future. It's, a, it's, a, it's an important thing for us to see. For us to always have, seek the perspective of heaven. To seek the perspective of God on life. Because you see, physical reality is not the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is the unseen reality. That is greater That is more important. Life is not always as it seems. And it's so important for us to have the perspective of heaven. What is the perspective of heaven? That God is the most important consideration in any 
instance in any life, in any culture, in our world, God is the most important consideration. You remember Yeshua quoting from Psalm 118? He said, The stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the corner, the cornerstone, the chief stone, the stone in which you measure all the rest of the building. If you leave out the cornerstone, the building will be wonky and unstable and will eventually fall down. Yeshua had said, if you build your life on my words, you're building on solid rock. But if you ignore me and my words, it's like you are building your life on sand. Storms are going to come in this life, one way or another. And the storm doesn't make a person. A storm reveals a person and reveals what we have placed our trust in, what we have built our life on. Over and over in this glorious book of Daniel, we have seen the spiritual and eternal reality that God is always in charge. Always. God was in charge when Jerusalem was captured and Daniel and his friends were taken into captivity. God was in charge when Jerusalem fell in 587, 586. And God was in charge when Nebuchadnezzar was king. And God was in charge when Belshazzar was drinking wine until he was drunk. And God was in charge when the Medo-Persian Empire came and took over Babylon that night. And God continues to be in charge to this very day. God is God alone. The book of Revelation, I love to read the book of Revelation because it shows God is in charge. Who's seated on the throne of the universe? It's God. Our world is not headed toward a chaotic end. Our world is being guided by the hand of a loving, gracious God who is called Father. And God reveals over and over in His Word that He wants a relationship with us. And that He has a wonderful variety of ways of trying to get our attention, of revealing Himself. He's given us this book. He's given us people, stories, accounts. He's given us creation and our conscience. He's given us a multitude of things. To say, I want a relationship with you. I want you to turn to me and walk with me and find life in me. Isaiah in chapter 21 of his prophecy, some 150 years or more before this incident, predicted the fall of Babylon. Over and over, as we read the word of God, we see that God always keeps His Word. God always fulfills what He says He will do. Sooner or later, one way or another, ways that might be beyond our current comprehending or understanding, we can always count on God to keep His Word. And God's Word is reliable and faithful and true. As a side note, historians used to think that Daniel was a 
a, a book that was written after the fact, that a, after these world empires came, somebody wrote it way down the road. And one of the evidences they used for that was they said they couldn't find any evidence for this King Belshazzar. There was, there was no evidence in the records. Well, lo and behold, archaeological evidence about 150 years ago started finding the fact that Belshazzar was a real person. And in fact, the insight about who he was and how he ruled was something that could only have been written by a person who lived in close proximity to his time. And so it became clear that actually the book of Daniel was totally accurate. And that's the way it has been with Scripture. As time has gone on, more and more evidence has been found to clarify that this book is true. That this book was preserved by the living God for us. And that God will always keep his word. And then the final insight that I think God would have for us is that it is always in our best interest to respond to God's revelation as soon as we possibly can. Whenever God speaks to us, some way we need to respond, whether it's saying, Father, thank you for speaking. Make this so in my life. Or whether there's some action that that our faith and our relationship would lead us into, that the Spirit would inspire. In Psalm 95, we read about the importance of our responding to God. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. God is in charge. God is the rock of our salvation. It is appropriate for us to sing to Him, to joyfully worship Him, to respond to Him. Verse 4, In His hand are the deep places of the earth, the heights of the hills are His also, the sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand today. This Shabbat, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. As in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved that that, with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore on my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but respond. In Hebrews, where this is quoted in chapter 3, one of the things that helps us to be responsive to God is this gathering that we have. Because one of the things that happens 
as we, the people of God, who trust in Yeshua, gather together. It says that we help each other. That we encourage each other. In fact, there's a place for us to daily encourage each other so that sin will not deceitfully harden us and twist our thinking. God loves us. God loves this world that He has made. God is reaching out to reveal Himself in this world. God wants you and I to be in a relationship with Him. And He wants us to be absolutely wealthy when we get to heaven. In the sense that we are rich towards Him. Because we have lived lives in a love relationship with Him. That we have responded to Him when He has spoken. That we have walked in faith, relying on Him. Him being the center of our life. Him revealing life. He always keeps His word. He loves us. His design is to bless us. Therefore, whenever we hear, whenever we hear, may God help us say, Yes, Lord, Your servant is listening. And may we respond in love and in faith. Let's pray together. Father, when we read the account of this ancient king, so many things stir in our hearts. We see, ultimately, that You and You alone are King. And that, ultimately, we are accountable to You. And ultimately, life is all about You. Father, as, as Your people, as followers of Yeshua, May this be so more and more in our life. May we be responsive to your quietest whisper, your smallest revelation. May we be quick to respond. May we walk in the fullness of life with you day by day, that we may be wealthy towards You, well prepared for that day when we face You. And may be it so, may it be so for us, that when You weigh us on Your scales, that we would be weighty with righteousness and faith and love and hope and joy. Patience, self-control, faithfulness. Bless us now. Guide us. Enable us to respond wholeheartedly in love. In Yeshua's name, amen.